0: And the title of it is, Signs on Earth, Signs in Heaven. Signs on Earth, Signs in Heaven. As you know, I'm a student of last days prophecy. I study and I watch very carefully what's going on in the world, and I view it through the the lenses of God's Word. Because the Bible tells us that we are in the last days. There's no question about that. And it also tells us if we are really in tune with what's happening in the world and with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit, we are actually witnessing the day approaching. We're seeing that the coming of Christ is getting closer and closer and closer. And the church really needs to wake up. The church needs to wake up now and understand the times in which we're living. This is not the same time we were living in a year ago. There have been major changes in the world and in the church. I'm talking about the whole church in this past year. And we need to be very carefully watching what's going on, more importantly, preparing for the greatest event in all of human history, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's coming. It is absolutely coming. And we need to wean ourselves off of this world and the stuff of this world, set our affection on things above Understand the times in which we're living and really get more serious. I don't care how serious you are. Get more serious about prayer, about the word of God, about serving the Lord, about evangelism, about whatever it is that God's called you to do. We need to ramp that thing up even more now as we see the day approaching. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in a better government for Washington, a new president or a new Congress or some new laws. Our hope is what Paul calls the blessed hope. It's when Jesus calls us to come up and meet him in the air. And that hope needs to become more and more a part of our whole being. Our daily prayers, our daily meditations should be centered around that event. All right. You may be wondering about my title, Signs on Earth, Signs in Heaven. We're going to be looking at two main passages of scripture in the little bit of time that we have. Matthew 24 to talk about signs on the earth, and then we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to talk about signs in heaven. Are you ready? Here we go. Matthew 24, we're going to read from verse 3 to 14. And A number of you have been here for studies, messages that we've done on passages like Matthew 24, so I'm just going to be skimming the surface on this. I could go on for weeks just in what is contained here, but we've done that in the past, and I'm just going to touch on a few things. Matthew 24, starting with verse 3, "...as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately." Tell us, they said, when will this happen? In context, he was talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened about 35 years later after he was speaking these words. When will this happen? And there are actually three questions here. When will this happen, the destruction of the temple? Number two, what will be the sign? There's that word sign. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So there's three questions. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Are you noticing the word many, many times? Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The word that is translated sign in verse 3, the question they ask, what will be the sign of your coming, is the Greek word semion, which can be translated in the Bible, miracle, sign, wonder, or indication. It's an indication of something. And it actually comes from a root word which means to signify. So thus it's normally translated a sign. But this is often a sign that is indicating or signifying something. And in the context, they want to know, when are you coming back? He had already been talking to them about, I came from my father, I'm going back to my father, and then I'm coming again to receive you unto myself. So what will be the sign, the indication of your coming? And of course, he lists many things here, and he says that they're going to be like birth pains. I've never given birth, and I don't plan on it. Um, I've witnessed a few of them, and I've read about it, and I think I understand a little bit of the biology that goes on, but the mother who is about to give birth, the pain, the contractions, the sorrows that are connected with that birth, they increase in frequency and in intensity as the time of delivery draws near. So I believe there's a correlation between that metaphor that these signs, earthquakes, wars, and all the things we've talked about before, we're seeing them now with greater frequency, with greater intensity. And it's going to continue to build to that climax when the birth takes place. In this case, the birth is the rapture where the church is caught up to be with Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, we need to be paying close attention to all of these indications. These are the signs on earth. These are things that are happening on earth that are telling us Christ is coming soon. And did you notice how much of this passage Jesus talks about deceptions, Many deceptions, many false Christs, many false teachers, many false prophets, deceiving many. That's the troubling part about this sign. But I want to tell you today, this sign is coming to pass with greater and greater force, with greater and greater intensity, And it's not something that is pleasant to watch, but it is happening. Deception is sweeping over the earth, and it's even entering strongly into many churches and religious groups. And we need to understand, Jesus said, watch for this. It's an indication of where we are on God's timeline. And those of you that were with us maybe a couple years ago, I forget when we did a message on end times. At that time, I talked about deceptions and false Christs and everything, and I think I even did a PowerPoint, and I had a picture of this guy. Um, His name was Dr. Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda has a worldwide ministry based in Miami. He's originally from Puerto Rico. And at first, he was claiming to be Jesus, and then he went a step further and started claiming also to be the Antichrist. And he was actually wearing 666 on on his body. Now, we kind of laugh, like, who could be so dumb to follow that, right? Millions, millions of followers... In many nations, huge ministry called Creciendo en Gracia, growing in grace, that was based just in where we were last week, Miami, Florida, and large ministry, large following, many, many, many people following this guy. Well, I wasn't paying too much attention to it until this past week. I found out while I was in Florida that he suddenly died last August, stricken just like that with cirrhosis of the liver. Well, you might think the movement has dissolved, but no, 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 no. Now they're waiting for Jesus to come again, this guy that claims to be Jesus to come back again. These are the kind of deceptions that we're seeing in the world, strong delusions That you might think, well, you know, we're intelligent people now. Who can fall for something so stupid? (laughs) Not so fast. Many, many will be deceived. I need not even talk about what Jesus mentions here with the wars. Everybody knows what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, in the Middle East, with Israel and Hamas, and we're going to see more and more of these kinds of things as the time draws near. It's not specifically seen in Matthew, but it is in the King James, and it's also in the original Greek, and you find it in Luke's gospel. Another thing that Jesus said to watch out for would be pestilences or diseases. And I've mentioned here in previous studies, they have a whole journal now, a monthly medical journal that is published called New and Emerging Diseases. Isn't that encouraging? And it's almost like every few weeks you hear about some new thing in the news. I had never even heard of this MERS until recently, and we had to fly in and out of airports this week, and they have signs all over the place about this new plague. And everybody's hearing about the Ebola virus. Um, They're saying, get ready because it's coming to the U.S. And, you know, on and on you can go with these things. New diseases. How many of you have heard of chikungunya? I never heard of this thing until a while back. They had it in Sri Lanka. It's starting to really move across the Caribbean and it's come to the U.S. now. And these are not things that are going to go away. Jesus said, expect Look for signs. These are indications. More plagues, new and emerging diseases are coming upon the earth. But there's something in this passage that I've been looking at more than all these other things. Wars and earthquakes and all that stuff aside. If we can go back to verse 10. This is the part that's troubling to me as a pastor. One of the indications that Jesus said to look for to show us where we're at in the timeline, what does it say, a few? Many will what? Turn away from the faith. Now, you can't turn away from something if you weren't in it, facing it, and a part of it. So, we're going to witness many... Abandoning their faith in God. It's sometimes referred to as the great apostasy, a great falling away is predicted as part of this last day's scenario. Go to the next verse. And a few? Many false prophets will appear and deceive a few, a few gullible ones, deceive many people. Keep going, it's even more troubling. Because of the increase of wickedness. Is is anybody beside me noticing that that's happening? Only me? The world's getting better? Because of the increase of wickedness, he changes from many to most. The love of most will grow cold. And if you've been with us in previous studies where we've talked about the different words that are translated love in the New Testament, there are at least three different kinds of love mentioned in the Bible. There's eros, which is more like erotic, physical attraction. There's phileo, which is kind of the brotherly love. And then there's agape, that's divine, God's kind of love. Unfortunately, the word that Jesus uses here is agape. The love of most will grow cold. So sad as it is, we will be witnessing many falling away from the faith in these last moments of time. And many who were once charged with that agape love of God growing cold. Let me tell you something. If you have ears to hear what I'm saying here today, this is no time to take a vacation from God. This is no time to cool off. It's no time to sort of back up and get more interested in the things of the world. This is time to shake ourselves and get more serious about God and the times in which we're living, because this is going to happen. It is happening. And I've... Been in several situations which I don't even want to elaborate on this morning. Where I've been with many, many Christians that I've known over a period of years, and I'm seeing some strange changes in their lives, not for the better. I'm talking about compromises, worldly compromises. People who never used to drink or get drunk are now social drinking as Christians. And this kind of thing concerns me, and I believe it's all a part of this growing cold. Compromising with the world. Just sort of taking it easy. Jesus goes on in verse 13 to talk about what you and I need to do. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then verse 14 We need to be proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to the four corners of the earth. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. All right, that's the signs on earth. A little bit depressing, a little bit discouraging, unless you have a hope that's beyond this earth. Unless you have your eyes on heaven Jesus said, When you see these things take place, mope, have a self-pity party, and get depressed. What He said? In Luke 21, 28, He says, When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. If you're seeing the day approaching, rather than getting depressed And discouraged and alarmed about what's going on in Russia or what's going on in the Middle East inside your spirit is going hallelujah we're getting ready we're getting ready for blast off I'm gonna stand up I'm gonna lift up my head I'm gonna lift up my hands I'm gonna lift up my eyes and I'm gonna get ready to get out of here because this is not my home that is heaven is where we're headed heaven is where we need to be looking in these days. And that leads me to the second half of my message. Signs on earth, signs in heaven. And I want to give a brief teaching. We've actually taught the whole book of Revelation, the whole end times scenario, but I'm just going to zero in on what I believe is a very important portion of scripture, which is very misunderstood in Christian churches. And I'm going to trust God to help me here to make this as simple as possible. Revelation chapter 12. You need to go home and study this chapter, and I would challenge you to read the whole book of Revelation this week. 22 chapters. But in Revelation 12, we're going to do it piece by piece here. I want to read verses 1 to 6 to kind of launch us here. And you're going to notice the word sign again here, it's the same word that was used in Matthew 24. Signs, something indicating or signifying something. John sees a great and wondrous sign that appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, Let me give you a little background on the book of Revelation. It's very important to kind of have a framework to study the book of Revelation, otherwise you can get lost and confused and and it's, it's not as complicated as a lot of people think if you take it from the first chapter and understand that when John wrote the book of Revelation, he was given sort of an outline in which to write this book. And in Revelation chapter 1, if we can go very quickly to verse 19, I think you'll see that he was given three different parts to the outline. Revelation 1, verse 19. Right, therefore, what you have seen, he had already seen Jesus in all of his glory, that's what he had seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Past present, future. Three parts. Chapter 1 describes what he had already seen. He's already written down his description of the vision of Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are messages to churches that existed in Asia Minor at the time John was receiving this vision. So those two chapters are what is now. Jesus was talking to each church. I know what's going on in your church. I know what's happening in your church. And then, what will take place later? It is my firm opinion, after studying the book of Revelation many, many times, that the bulk of the book is future prophecy. It's not a history lesson. It's prophetic concerning future Events And I think you'll see that even more clearly when we finish with the messages to the seven churches. Remember, that's what is now. Notice how the tone changes when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will give you a history lesson. Now, what it says? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So, my firm belief is from Revelation 4 1 all the way to the end of the book, we're now looking at future events. This is very important. Especially when you come to a controversial chapter like Revelation chapter 12, where you got all kinds of wacky interpretations. If you look in commentaries, and I don't even recommend that, you'll, you'll find all sorts of things. And we're going to address some of the common views on what Revelation 12 is all about. But this is an important backdrop before we even start looking at any of these chapters. This is not history. It's future It's prophetic. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Okay? Now, another thing, I'm doing all this very quickly today. We normally take a lot more time when I do this in a Bible study. But the book of Revelation is divided in another way. There are actually two different visions or two different versions of the whole tribulation period. Daniel's 70th week, seven years of tribulation. Revelation chapter 6 to 11 shows it from one perspective. It's really from a Jewish perspective. And there's a lot more emphasis on Israel, on Jerusalem, and on the Jews in that vision. When we come to Revelation chapter 12, which is the dividing point, we actually are beginning another version, another vision of the same events, but from a Gentile point of view. Without going into a whole lot of detail, if you study Revelation chapter 11, you begin to get a sense that whatever has been going on is coming to a climactic end. And in Revelation chapter 11, you find statements like, The kingdoms of the world have now become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. The dead are being judged. I mean, judgment of the dead is always associated with the end. And so when Revelation 11 finishes, it's kind of like, okay, I got it. That's the end of the story. But then Revelation 12 starts where we just read with this vision of this woman in heaven. And as you continue reading through 12, 13, 14, 15, you begin to see a lot of the same events, but expressed in a different perspective in that second vision or that second version. Now, that's not critical to what I want to share with you today. But for those of you that haven't heard that before, I'll just throw that out. But Revelation 12, there are basically three interpretations... On what we just read about this woman in heaven and this dragon standing before her and this male child that she's about to give birth to. The number one view that you'll find in many many commentaries even to this day is that the woman represents the Virgin Mary and the male child is Jesus and he's caught up to the throne of God um and he will rule all nations with an iron scepter. That's kind of the standard view. There are some serious problems with that interpretation, not the least of which, first of all, remember, Revelation 12 is not John giving us a history lesson on how Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. It's prophecy. It's future events. The problems are even greater. Uh... In Revelation 12, the woman is where? On earth or in heaven? In heaven, right? Did Mary give birth on earth or in heaven? On earth. Her birth was an earthly one. This one is a heavenly one. There are more problems. After Mary gave birth to Jesus, was he immediately snatched up to the throne of God? No, nothing like that. Nothing like that. Her child was not caught up to the throne as soon as he was born. But to me, the biggest problem with this and even the next interpretation, which which is also fairly common for Revelation chapter 12, if we can put up 12.6 again, Revelation 12.6, after giving birth, the woman flees into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of, and the Word of God is very specific here, for 1,260 days. Nothing like that in Scripture about Mary after giving birth to Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Now, while we're on the subject of numbers, the tribulation is referred to as Daniel's 70th week. It's a week of years, seven years instead of seven days. And Daniel 9.27 makes it very clear that something very significant happens in the middle of the week. So most Bible scholars, people who study prophecy, they all see clearly that that seven-year period is divided in half. There are two halves, three and a half year halves that make up the whole tribulation period. Well, 1,260 days is exactly three and a half years in the Jewish calendar. Their calendar year is 360 years, not 360 days, not years. 360 days, not 365 and a quarter like ours. Three and a half years is the same thing as 1,260 days. Another expression that you find in the next chapter of Revelation is 42 months. Same thing. It's three and a half years. And then we're going to see later in Revelation 12 kind of a poetic way of referring to this same time allotment of three and a half years. And the phrase is time Times and half a time. Just keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to be coming to that. But no way does this have any relevance to Mary giving birth to Jesus on the earth and Mary flees into the wilderness for three and a half years. It's not there. There's nothing like it. So there are a lot of problems. With that interpretation, although it seems very logical and likely because of the fact that this male child that she gives birth to, it said in verse 5 that he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. So surely that must mean Jesus, right? Not so fast. Not so fast. Now, we'll come back to that thought in a minute, but let me share with you view number two. This woman has a crown with 12 stars. Well, normally when you hear the word 12, two things should immediately pop into your mind. What's the first one? Israel. 12 tribes of Israel. What's the other one? 12 apostles. And you find both in Revelation 21 in the city of God. There are 12 foundations with the names of the 12 tribes and the names of the 12 apostles. So the second common view is the 12 stars signify the 12 tribes of Israel. And this woman is a picture of Israel. Remember, it's just a sign. It's signifying something. It's not a literal woman up in heaven. John saw a sign in heaven. So they see it as representing Israel who brought forth Jesus the Messiah through Israel the line of Israel? Well, some of the same problems with that view. Revelation 12 is not a history lesson, not a history of Israel and the birth of the Messiah. We come to the same problem in this verse with the 1,260 days. How did Israel flee into the desert for three and a half years after the Messiah came forth? It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't doesn't line up. Revelation 12, again, is a heavenly sign. Earthly Israel brought forth the Messiah. And we don't have time to go into it this morning, but in Galatians 4, Paul makes a distinction between earthly Israel and heavenly Israel. Earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. So there are major problems, again, with this second view. There's a third view, which is not very popular, and I understand why, because of its implications. But I am convinced more than I've ever been in my Christian life, and I've been teaching this for 40 years, I am convinced more than I've ever been that there is a third view on what John is describing. The woman he sees represents the church. The 12 stars could very easily signify the 12 apostles, indicating this is a reference to the church that was initiated with the 12 apostles after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. She's glorious. She's clothed with the sun. She's standing on the moon. The moon is a symbol in the Bible of grace. The moon has no light of its own, but it reflects The light of the sun. So she's standing in grace. She's clothed with the light of the sun. She has this crown with 12 stars on her head. And I want you to notice an interesting contrast here. All of her beauty, all of her glory is external. It's external. It can be seen. There's a second player in the vision who is completely hidden. No external glory. No external beauty. Matter of fact, not external. Because the man child, the male child, is still within her. Follow me here. The male child is within her. He's hidden. Now, the dragon is the second sign that John sees. John is told very clearly in the following verses, which we're going to come to in a little while that we don't need to use our imagination on the second sign. We know who the dragon is. It's Satan. It's the serpent. It's the devil. We're not told exactly who the woman is, but we're given these little bits of information which are key to our understanding of what this woman represents. And here's the thing about this whole passage that has convinced me beyond any shadow of a doubt that this isn't about the Virgin Mary, it's not about Israel, it's about the church. At the point we come to verse 4, back up a little bit to verse 4 here, Revelation 12. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her, devour her child the moment it was born. At this point, it'll change later in the chapter, but at this point, the dragon has no interest in the woman. His whole focus is on this hidden male child that is about to be born and snatched up to the throne of God. And in verse 5, we saw that after his birth, he will rule all nations with an iron scepter, okay? Key words. Now, many of you have already gone through this teaching with us, but even if you have, how many of you the first time you saw this verse just assumed that because of that phrase, will rule all nations with an iron scepter, that it must be referring to Jesus, right? Okay, that's logical. It's logical, but it's wrong. (laughs) And I think I can show you why go to Revelation 2 now. Remember Revelation 2 and 3 were that second part of the outline. Write down what is now. This is what was going on in churches at the time John was having these visions. So in Revelation 2, let's go to about verse 25. In this message to the church in Thyatira, he's told them, hold on to what you have until I come, okay? He's talking to the church. Now keep going. To him who overcomes... By the way, this is the theme in all seven messages to these seven churches. You have the church, and within the church, another group that was hearing what the Holy Spirit was saying to them. Overcome, persevere, triumph in your faith. To him who overcomes and does my will for a little while to the end. Where did we read that? Matthew 24, faithful to the end. To him who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Now stop. Is he talking to Jesus here? No, he's talking to the church. Those Christians who by God's grace and by listening to the Holy Spirit are able to overcome live victorious triumphant lives in their faith God says I'm going to give you authority over the nations okay the clincher is the next verse he will rule them with an iron scepter who's he is it Jesus who's he the overcomer very clear This is why when you're studying the Bible, you have to get the context. Find out what is going on around that particular statement. He, the overcomer, will rule them because he overcame. God gave him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I, who's talking here, Jesus just as I have received authority from my father. Now, I wasn't real good in English, but I can understand the difference between he, I, and my father. There's three different people here. There's the overcomer. There's the one speaking in the first person, which is Jesus and his reference to my father, just as I have received authority. So the overcomers receive authority just as Jesus received authority from my Father. Continue. Next verse. Okay. I will also give him the morning star. Now, we are called to rule and reign with Christ. And this male child that is snatched up to the throne of God... We have to be very careful that we don't just automatically assume it's referring to Jesus. This is one aspect of it. The overcomers will rule with him. We are called to rule and reign with Christ. And I know I'm jumping all over the place, but if you go to Revelation 3, 21, the final of those seven messages, the the last one is to the church in Laodicea, Here's what he promises the overcomers in that church. 321. To him who what? Who sleeps, takes it easy. You know, pastor, I'm just going to cruise. I don't want to really get too excited. I don't want to get all radical. So I'm just going to kind of cruise in my Christian life. Uh, You're not going to make it if you're cruising. You're just not going to make it. You need to be pressing, swimming, flying, fighting. You need to be giving it your all now. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to what? Sit with me where? On my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What do you do when you sit on a throne? You rule. We are going to rule and reign with Christ, sit with Him in His throne, and connecting this with what we just read in chapter 2, overcomers are going to be given authority, not just to sit there on the throne and twiddle their thumbs and maybe eat figs and play a harp or something. They're going to rule the nations with Christ. It's a powerful thing. I can't fully comprehend it, but I know it's in the Word of God, and I believe it. So, This child, this male child that the dragon was so interested in, as he's born, he is snatched up to the throne of God to rule all nations. One last point here, and this, I think, is just... The nail in the coffin, if you know what I'm talking about. For me anyway, as far as the interpretation of this passage. If we can go to Revelation 12 again and verse 5. There's a word that John uses. It's only used in this context one other time in the New Testament. And you may be guessing what it is. Her child was snatched up to God and to His throne. It's the Greek word harpazo. Now, you don't have to remember that word necessarily, but it's a word that means literally to snatch, to grab suddenly, or or to pick up real fast. It's It's an action word. That's why the best translation here is snatched. Well, it's used in that context only one other time, and it's found in 1 Thessalonians 4, and let's go there. 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're going to read from verse 13 down to verse 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, raise your hand if you're still alive, Okay, I think most of us fit in that category. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be, and here's the word, caught up, snatched up, harpazo, raptured up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's never used, by the way, in reference to Jesus' resurrection. He wasn't snatched up. He rose from the dead... And then he very quietly ascended back to the Father. He wasn't caught up. He wasn't snatched up the way in which Paul is speaking here or the way in which John writes in chapter 12. It's a sudden catching up of something, in this case, people. We will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Now... Here's the part about Revelation 12 that is extremely troubling to me. The woman isn't snatched up. And I don't take these metaphors literally, but I believe there's a message. When a woman gives birth to a child, it's a small fraction of her total body weight. The child is small compared to the woman, to the mother. This is a small group that God is preparing, and it's a small group that the devil has his eyes on. Because they are not interested in this world, they're not interested in the fame, the glory, the stuff of this world, they are preparing to meet their heavenly bridegroom, Lord Jesus, in this event that Paul is describing right here. Caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It is our blessed hope. The thing that's extremely troubling, when Jesus spoke about the rapture, he told the disciples in Luke chapter 17, one will be taken, one will be left. It's that second part that's troubling. If you understand anything that I'm saying here today, and you believe that God has called you, to be that overcomer. God has called you to get ready for the coming of the Lord. Yes, that's joyous, that's exciting and everything, but there's a bittersweet aspect to it if you understand also that people are going to be left. Family members, it causes you to pray like you've never prayed before for unsaved loved ones, for backsliders, for lukewarm Christians that come to church once a month or twice a year. It, it gives you a real burden for them because you know what their destiny will be if they continue down the road they're on. They're not going in the rapture. They're not. And you may stone me for this, and I'll stake my whole life, my whole 40 years of ministry and study in the Word of God on this. They're not going in the rapture. Many, many, many are going to be left behind. Now, quickly, back to Revelation 12, and we're going to pick it up at verse 7, and trust me, We're we're going to finish this thing up pretty quickly, so bear with me. Revelation 12 from verse 7. There was war in heaven. Notice, in heaven. There was war in heaven. Where is all of this vision taking place? In heaven. Woman is in heaven. The dragon is in heaven. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Please help me here. Who's the dragon? it's the devil. Where is the devil? That sounds like heresy. Most churches will throw you out if you say that, but that's exactly what the Bible says. He's in heaven. He's in heavenly places. Read the book of Job chapter one. God is there in his throne room and suddenly some visitors come to chat with him. Who is it? It's Satan. Hey, where have you been, Satan? roaming to and fro in the earth but he has access to heavenly places there was war in heaven michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back i love the next part he was not strong enough say it with me he was not strong enough say it a little louder let the devil hear you he was not strong enough and they lost their place on earth in heaven The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ, for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Pause. Where has he been accusing the brothers? In heaven. Where is he now, though? He's being hurled down. I find a lot of Christians don't understand this timeline. This hasn't happened yet. This is future. It's prophetic. John is not giving us a history lesson on the devil. This is something yet to come. This war in heaven is going to take place when the male child is snatched up to the throne. When the overcomers are caught up in the rapture to the throne of Jesus Christ. Then and only then is Satan displaced and hurled down to the earth. I think you'll see it even clearer in the next verse. They overcame him. Who overcame him? Who's they? Where did they come from? It's the male child, the overcomers. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens. Man, if you're in that group, rejoice. And you who dwell in them. But if you're still on the earth, look out. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. To be more exact, he knows he only has seven years left. He knows the Bible. He knows Daniel's 70th week. He knows when the rapture of the church takes place, he's on a clicking clock. It's ticking, ticking, ticking down Seven years he has left. He knows that his time is short. Okay, keep going. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman. Help me here. Where is the woman? On the earth. Where is her child? In heaven. Where was the devil? In heaven. Where is the devil now? On earth. He wasn't interested in the woman before, was he? Now the male child is gone, he turns his attention to those that are left behind. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she she should be taken care of, and here it is, for a time Times and half a time. That's 1,260 days. Out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth, swallowing the river and the dragon, that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. For me, this last verse removes any doubt that this vision is not about the Virgin Mary. It's not about Israel. It's about the church. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. The rest of her offspring. Who are these people? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is not referring to the male child. Male child's gone. He was snatched up. Three and a half years of persecution, being chased by the devil. And if you read Revelation chapter 13, it explains how the dragon Satan will do that when he gets hurled down to the earth. You read about the beast or the Antichrist and the false prophet and how they are going to make war on the saints. Who are the saints? It's the woman. It's the Christians who are left behind who are still here on the earth during that first three and a half years of the tribulation. I'm not sharing this to try to scare you. It is scary. And I'm not going to try to apologize for the word of God. But as I shared earlier, whenever I'm meditating on these things, I immediately begin to see pictures in my mind of people I know, family members, loved ones, people who may have once been in the church that are no longer going on with the Lord. And it causes me to cry out, God, do something. I don't want anybody to be in this group. Because if you're in this group, and it's a huge group, John saw this group... In his first vision, in Revelation chapter 7, a huge, innumerable multitude that was standing before the throne of God, and he had to ask, who are these people? And the answer came, these have come out of the great tribulation. So the only encouraging part of this is, is there will be many, many, many people who finally take a stand for God during the tribulation. They refuse to take the mark of the beast. They refuse to compromise with the whole Antichrist system. And they come out of the great tribulation. There's only one way to come out. That's by death. They will die. They will die. And let me summarize all of this very quickly. The woman represents the whole Christian church. I'm talking about every denomination, every stripe color, the whole Christian church dating back to the first century and the apostles. Out of that whole worldwide church, there's a much smaller group, and believe you me, I see this everywhere I go. There's a much smaller group that is hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, and they are saying together with the Holy Spirit, Come, Lord Jesus. Their whole focus is on this event of being snatched up to the throne of God. The larger group, they're more interested in externals, glory, fame, show, money, And that's what the world is seeing right now. They're seeing the woman. They're not seeing the male child because the male child is hidden. You know, I've had a question for the Lord for some months now about a number of events that I've been witnessing over the past year or two. And without going into the details, the Lord answered my question this morning while I was on my walk. Now, again, I've never given birth to a child. I've never been pregnant, but I know some of you have been. And, you know, when I see a mother in that eighth or ninth month, there's a certain look that comes over your face. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole look says, I can't wait to get rid of this baby. Does anybody dare raise their hand and tell me I'm right? I I can read that look. I can just see when when one of these moms, you know, that's a few days away from delivery, comes waddling in. It's written all over her face. Man, do I want to get rid of this baby. Not that she doesn't love the baby. She just doesn't want her in there anymore. I'm seeing something everywhere I go. The woman wants to expel the male child. This is a strange thought, but I understand what I'm talking about because I've seen it over and over and over. Precious men and women of God that are people of integrity, they love God. They're seeking God with all of their heart. Strangely and suddenly, they're being kicked out of their churches. They're being expelled from their ministries, and they're wondering why. God answered me this morning. This has been my question for several years. Lord, why is this happening? Why is this happening? He says, the woman wants to get rid of the child. And there is, like I shared a couple weeks ago in this church, there is a, a striking separation taking place between these two groups. One group is getting more and more excited about the world, looking like the world, dressing like the world, singing like the world. Oh, they want big everything, big temples, big money, big this, big that, and the other. And then there's another smaller group, They're fasting, they're praying, they're crying out to God. They want the Lord to return. And in Revelation 22, verse 17, and I'm going to end with this verse, 22, 17. This is their heart's cry. Listen to me very carefully. Next verse. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. There's a group in the earth today. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They're listening to the Holy Spirit. And they're actually becoming one with the Holy Spirit. Notice the Spirit and the Bride, two different entities. They're saying one thing. They're saying, come Lord Jesus. And there is a group that in the midst of all the confusion and all the earthly signs that we talked about, they're hearing the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit keeps whispering to them is, stand firm, be strong, persevere to the end, because the end is near. And my Son will come, and He will not tarry, and He will take you up. Just as he promised. And they're basically living their lives in that hope, and it's echoed by the fact that they and the Holy Spirit are saying the same thing Come, come, Lord Jesus. And you know, I'm not trying to sound critical, but we were with Pastor Wieson and Leda this past weekend. They travel all over the world, they minister in many, many, many big, famous churches because of their music ministry. And they share with me with tears whenever they come back from these trips. The churches that they minister in, they're not really interested in hearing messages like what I'm sharing here. They, they don't want to hear about holiness, getting close to the Lord. What they want to hear about is bigness, greatness. Let's make more money. Let's become more famous. And they say it's so hollow. They were telling me about a huge church that they were in, Recently, Ten Sunday services, brother. Ten. Every Sunday, they have to have ten services to take in all the people. And yet, so hollow, so empty. You know, I'm not really interested in all that. I really am not interested in all that. I want to get closer to the Lord. I want to know Him better. And I want to make Him known to as many people as I can. But I've been revived in my conviction in recent days that I want to get ready for the coming of the Lord. And whoever wants to come along, let's do it. Let's encourage each other. Let's pray. Let's work. Let's do what we have to do. But let's keep our eyes on the ball. Let's keep our eyes on things above. Jesus Christ is coming soon. He will not delay. We need to wake up stand up, lift up our eyes, lift up our voices, lift up our heads, understand the times in which we're living, be excited about the times in which we're living, but also take a burden for those around us that, I don't know, sometimes it seems to me like they're on another planet. They're not even paying attention to what's going on in the world. They don't have a clue what the Bible says. And it's just like Jesus said. In that day, people will be marrying, eating, drinking, giving in marriage, and they won't have a clue until it's all over. I don't want people to be taken by surprise. I want us to be watching, ready, prepared when Jesus comes. Let's all stand. Father, these are sober times in which we live. There are wars, rumors of wars, conflicts across the earth. Young and old alike are dying, tragic deaths, drug overdoses, and on and on the list goes. We're seeing the rise of rebellion, of lawlessness, of wickedness throughout the earth. And Lord, you are again reminding us that these are all just indications, all signs of the times in which we live. God, I pray not only for this church, but for your church worldwide, that there would be an awakening to the times in which we live. There would be a heart cry coming from the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. God, we can't pray that if we know we're not ready. So Lord, included in that cry is a cry for you to work in our hearts and lives and prepare us for your soon return. Lord, you're coming for a church without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. And it's a scary thing when we see what's going on in the world today. But God, we know that you've called us. And we know that your grace is sufficient to finish the good work which you started in our lives. Lord, I pray for each one here today. Those listening to this message. both present here today and maybe others that will listen to it on the internet or through recordings i pray that the holy spirit would pierce through and get a hold of our hearts get a hold of our minds get a hold of our lives that we may position ourselves to be ready for these events that are about to unfold god we surrender we commit our lives into your hands today We trust you. You are our salvation. And we trust from beginning to end, you will save us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.